Hello and welcome to the EOSS podcast, a conversation on foreign policy what-if scenarios, events that are not as unlikely as they perhaps seem and definitely worth thinking about. My name is Florence Gaub, I am the EOSS Deputy Director and the host of the show, and with me today are Siniku Kasari, Senior Associate Analyst working on Russia and the Eastern Neighborhood. Welcome, Sinikuka. Hello. And Giovanni Falek, Senior Analyst working on Africa. Hello, Giovanni. Hello, Florence. Now, let's take a look at the news item that has just been handed in straight from the future, the year 2022. Five members of the EU Electoral Observation Mission in Gambola were killed today in an ambush. The mission has been evacuated. Responsibility for the attack has been laid at the door of a pro-government militia. However, there is evidence that a private military company from Russia is also involved. The attack comes three days after Russia was accused of a blatant disinformation campaign in Gambola. The head of the EU Electoral Observation Mission stated that Russia is trying to influence the results of the elections in favour of the ruling party, the NBA. The EU's high representative demanded an investigation into the attack and condemned Russian interference in Gambola's electoral process. He also announced that the EU is considering all possible countermeasures against those responsible. Moscow has denied any involvement. So, Giovanni and Sinikuka, what is your take on this scenario? Sinikuka, do you want to go first? Well, perhaps the only thing that I would say against this scenario is really the fact that uh, it is quite commonplace already. We already have seen cases of quite direct and blatant election interference from Russia in many places in Africa. We have already seen very active private military companies in many places in Africa as well. So basically what is a novelty is this kind of like a, a very direct EU role in the scenario. But all the other elements, uh, kind of exporting political technology to Africa, as well as kind of exporting uh, private military companies and making money out of uh, security entrepreneurship in Africa, it's already there. The only novel part in this is our strong response in this scenario. Everything else has already happened. Yeah, and obviously there hasn't been any sort of casualties when it comes to European Union election observation missions. Giovanni, the view from Africa. I tend to agree with uh, Sinikuka. My point here will be that the scale and gravity of this event and the fact that there are people killed and a strong reaction by the European Union vis-a-vis -vis what happened demonstrated that there is a clear fault line in Africa which is widening between Russia and the European Union something that wasn't there before, and it is aggravating as we go further. And uh, this originates uh, very much, as uh, Sinikuka was saying, in Russia's uh, assertiveness and uh, growing influence in Africa. It has to do with uh, African countries' interest in playing the game with Russia, but also the fact that the European Union is called to develop new, sophisticated ways to counter this threat and prevent these events from happening. I have a question about the private military company, because the way the scenario is written, it doesn't say explicitly this was Russia killing the five members of the EU mission. But since there is evidence of a private military company from Russia, it sounds like it was them. Can you tell us a bit uh, about these private military companies, the Russian private military companies? Yes, uh, and perhaps even more generally about the way in which Russia conducts foreign policy these days. I mean, very often it is not Russian diplomats or officials that are pursuing Russian interests abroad, but there is variety of actors uh, kind of advancing both their private interests as well as uh, Russian national interests. 
it's very blurred. It is very difficult to attribute uh, the responsibility of those actions. And in particular, in the African case, I would say that sort of the strongman uh, of Russia behind many of the African operations has been Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is basically a friend of Putin's. So without any kind of official affiliation with the Russian state, apart from having connections or kind of links with Russian security services or intelligence services and being a close friend to President Putin. Attribution is a major issue these days in Africa, but also elsewhere. And we're going to come back to that because attribution, obviously, we, we speak a lot about it in the cyberspace. But what you're saying is that the Russians are playing this game also in the real world. Giovanni, would you agree? Well, obviously, you already mentioned that there is more and more Russian penetration of the African continent. Why are the African states receptive to Russian interference? They sort of uh, need it. And I wouldn't speak about African state. I will speak about African regimes. So making a big difference here between the state as a complex entity that includes the people who are not obviously part of this game and the regime, the long-standing rulers that in some cases need to resort to some, uh, you know, alternative means for legitimizing their uh, stay in power. As we have seen in the past year, democracy in Africa has become the main rule of the game meaning that regimes no longer can sustain themselves by means of military coup or armed uh, you know, ways to do that. And if democracy is the, is the new rule of the game, you have to do something to stay in power. And that means in some cases resort to either violence or disinformation or fraud or some extra help from uh, you know, outside powers. That was going to be my next question, because when I look at the scenario, I, as a non-Africa expert, my reaction is, why don't they just rig the elections? That's not really the way to go in an authoritarian system. And here the scenario is Russia helps the regime win the election, but indirectly, correct? So what you're saying is that Basically, Russia is doing in Africa what they're doing here. They are trying to operate within a democratic system. Isn't that good news for democracy? I mean, bad news, but good news in the sense that it means that democracy is becoming the norm in Africa? In a way, yes. But democracy does come with uh, side effects uh, in Africa. And uh, in some cases, this may mean rulers resorting to fraudulent elections. In other cases, uh, when fraudulent elections might not be the best way forward to stay in power, this may mean finding other ways, and uh, this very much includes, you know, seeking extra help from other powers or other tricks, if you want, and this information here very much being one powerful instrument to affect the results of elections. Russia has been testing and trying these techniques at home already for decades. So in a way, it has really a sophisticated system of kind of making undemocracy a permanent state of affairs. So this is not about kind of like a, a phase that will pass. But in fact, these technologies help to sustain the undemocratic regime for a long period of time. So in a way, it's bad news, I think, in a sense that it might be this that is the new normal, not a transition to democracy, but kind of staying outside the democratic uh, regime, but kind of just having the facade, but filling it with different meaning altogether. Okay, so bad news overall. Would you say that Russian activities in Africa, when it comes to disinformation, election meddling, etc., are inspired by what they're doing in Europe, or is there a different African taste to their activities? So this is perhaps a more question to Giovanni, that is the Africa expert, but I would say that, of course, the actors even are pretty much the same. So, for example, Yevgeny Prigozhin has been accused 
of being behind the uh, American election meddling and then afterwards in Africa and also in Ukraine. So this is uh, kind of like clearly something that you can transfer from continent to another. Which is interesting because it seems to indicate that there's something fundamentally human about the way they do it, if it fits almost every context. Yeah. It is a bit more brutal in Africa than elsewhere, and in particular because it is very often backed by the private military companies. So there is even a bit more brutal way of handling, I think, the election manipulation in Africa than elsewhere. Would you agree with that, Johnny? Absolutely. I think there are some common patterns. If you look at uh, Russia's disinformation campaign and involvement uh, in uh, manipulating elections worldwide, but certainly political systems differ uh, across continents. And what we have in Africa is a series of countries where, where Russia has launched operations, which are characterized by high levels of political violence, of corruption, and other structural conditions that make the situation, I would say, much more complex and dangerous than what we can see in Europe or elsewhere. Perhaps also the fact that in this scenario we had some casualties and uh, perhaps you wouldn't have that in sort of like American case, for example. But here I think it's quite fitting and I think that we even have a precedent to this because only last year three Russian journalists who were investigating the Wagner Group, the Russian private military company, was doing uh, in the Central African Republic, they were killed. And this kind of reminds very much of that case, although, of course, the setting is different and this is in an unknown African country. Yes, it's a fictional African country. Uh, we picked it because we can't decide which country it could be, correct? Well, we have some hints. Uh, <laughs> so we could technically decide which countries will be fitter for, this, for the purpose of this simulation. How big do you think is the pool of African states that are potentially vulnerable to this scenario? It's huge for the following reasons. Uh, first, uh, Russia's strategy towards Africa, it's continent-wide. So they are really going for the big picture and not selecting one specific sub-region, but trying to influence dynamics in the whole sub-Saharan Africa and Middle East and North Africa, as we know. Secondly, it has been reported that private military companies affiliated to Russia are present in more than 20 countries in sub-Saharan Africa, which of course increases the chances and the likelihood that Russia will operate in those countries. And on top of that, if you follow the money and the Russian economic interests or energy interests or engagement uh, in the extractive industries, you will realize that this is really has a continental dimension and not specific to just a few countries. Let's talk about attribution. I mean, we talk about attribution mostly in the cyberspace, where we assume, we suspect that behind a lot of attacks is Russia. We can't prove it because cyber forensics doesn't really work. But now we also see it in real life. Do you think that that's a distinctly Russian approach to foreign policy, Sini? Yeah, interesting. It's not only foreign policy, but we see more and more these kind of unofficial networks operating also inside Russia. I think that the actorness of the state is kind of diluting. And what we are seeing is both internally and externally that these kind of unofficial actors are kind of getting more active. And it is very dangerous, I think. And it makes things very complicated, I think, for other powers. I mean, because... It used to be that you really had to have very hard evidence if you went and blamed another country for something. 
But now that we have seen that Russia quite systematically uses this kind of grey zone action, <laughs> I think that we are moving slightly uh, away from that. For example, in the Skripal case, I think states were attributing the action to Russia, although perhaps at least Russia is claiming that there is no evidence of that. Yeah, we basically stopped waiting for the evidence mm. if we have enough circumstantial evidence. And also there is the fact that oftentimes we actually do have the evidence, but we don't want to give it out to public. So in a way, we have to trust our authorities. But on the other hand, I think with populism and all that, it is questioned even more. So I think this is a bit of a double challenge in that respect. Why does Russia do that? Is that to do with plausible deniability? Do they want to do things? Well, I think that Russia is trying to maximize its power. And uh, this kind of asymmetric approach to foreign policy, for example, works very well for it. Open democracies probably couldn't really resort to this kind of shady actions abroad, whereas Russia probably can. It is kind of building on its relative strengths. And unfortunately, this type of activity is considered to be its strength. You said earlier that the new dimension of the scenario is actually us, the EU. So what would this scenario mean for us? I mean, other than obviously there's been an escalation, there are, there are victims. But if we take the victims aside, in political, strategic terms, what would this mean for us? First of all, the whole situation prompts the EU to change its strategic approach towards Russia and in Africa. We shall stop thinking about Russia with a Cold War mindset. The Soviet Union uh, used to go to sub-Saharan Africa with a big and open, speaking out loud the intention to build socialist regimes and investing huge resources into this enterprise as a means of proxy wars. Today, the situation is different. Russia is getting smarter and uh, its tools and instruments to project power and influence are diversified. Sinikuka has explained it very well. So this requires a whole new approach by the European Union to counter the, I would say, intended uh, and threatening consequences of this behavior, but also the unintended consequences when it comes to our ultimate goal, which is to have a democratic and uh, sustainable Africa. One question. In this scenario, the ruling party is supported by Russia. In our case, where Russia has interfered, I mean, in Europe, in European elections, there has been also some public pushback. Would you expect the same in Africa, that African publics or opposition parties would openly accuse Russia and polarize against it? That's possible, especially as what we are seeing in African countries is an increasingly resilient and active and mobilized society. So the civil society can play a big role and reinforce opposition to uh, regimes and uh, rulers and uh, fight against fraudulent or undemocratic uh, elections. So there are some seeds of uh, democratic resilience in Africa that can play against you know, Russian uh, behavior and operations uh, and, uh, and impact in there. Sini, what's in it for Moscow? Why do they want to go to Africa? There are several things, I think. It's opportunity-driven. If there is an opportunity, Russia will try to uh, get involved and engage. There are lots of commercial interests. For example, Russia is the biggest arms provider to Africa these days. So clearly, arms export is a very key reason to get involved. Also, I think that because Russia has a very competitive strategy, it wants to compete globally with other powers. And Africa is a place where it actually has a niche, a chance to compete. It doesn't have the same things that 
perhaps other powers. It's not a big investor, for example, like China is. It is not granting a lot of development aid, for example, as the EU is. So it has to, you know, find its own niche. And I think that it has. So basically, it is trading military or political support for economic benefits, uh, for example, diamonds, oil, you name it. And very often, I think it's also the fact that this is a place where the setting, the context is favorable to Russia. If you have instability, violence, weak democratic institutions, autocratic leaders, there is demand for Russia an actor like Russia. So I think it's opportunity driven. And on the other hand, I think it's also status driven in a sense, because as a great power, as Russia sees itself, it wants to act globally. It has to have presence in all continents and it wants to defend its national interests everywhere. Giovanni, what would we have to do as EU to prevent that situation from happening? I know that we are renegotiating uh, our our framework agreement, you know, post-Cotonou, everything that I learned from you about what's happening in EU-Africa relations. Um, is there anything we can do at this stage as we renegotiate our relationship with Africa that takes into account the rivalry that we face from Russia, but also from China? Generally, at the strategic level, everything starts with the understanding that there is a new multipolar competition going on in sub-Saharan Africa, that Russia is part of it. And African states are in a good position to be able to see a lot of supply for different types of uh, commodities and partnerships and deals that they need, especially African elites need for their own survival and to stay in power. And therefore, they're overwhelmed with this type of uh, offers coming from different corners of the world. And uh, we know China's presence in Africa has been established now. Gulf states are increasingly present in the continent. Russia is one example. And European Union is one among other players. So the first important step is to realize that we are no longer dealing with all-time Africa, but we are dealing with a new continent where multipolar competition is creating different patterns and dynamics. After that, I would suggest that the European Union builds uh, a new type of partnership that is based on uh, stronger economic, commercial and trade ties with African countries that promotes, of course, its norms and values as it did before, but in a much more pragmatic ways and take into account these new dynamics. And this also means engaging in areas that are perhaps outside the conventional ones that we're used to see the European Union engaging in. For instance, it's way more than the just the hotspots of uh, violence and uh, extremism, it boils down to really try and develop Africa's economies, deal with uh, innovation, digital innovation, urbanization, and uh, really try to support this growth pattern and partner with Africa so that African states can see in the EU a reliable partner that can beat the competition, so to speak. I think that we definitely need to convince our partners better. So it's not about necessarily preaching, but really convincing that we have something to offer that is more sustainable and better for these countries than what, for example, Russia can offer. If we look at the scenario, it's set in Africa, but our relationship with Russia isn't great, whether it's in the Middle East or in the Eastern neighborhood. Would a change in the relationship with Russia more generally also perhaps improve the situation in Africa? What I think that would really improve the situation everywhere uh, would at least be that if we tried to reach some kind of like a consensus on basic principles on which we want to base the relationship with Russia. 
I think that the relationship with Russia comes second, but we have to know what we want to get from the relationship first. And only then try to improve the relations with Russia without any significant risks. Because if we engage in dialogue without knowing what we want, I think it's not going to work out. So one has to be very careful. And perhaps here in the scenario, I would say that the reaction would need to be a common one, not just some EU member states kind of reprimanding Russia or taking action or expelling diplomats or something like that. But I think uh, if we really want to make an impact, I think we have to act together. So perhaps this is a call for unity. Which we hear all the time in the context of Russia and what, how we feel about Russia. Obviously, Russia has a similar approach to the Middle East and North Africa, the region that I work on. Um, but its penetration of that region has been limited now and historically, even though it, it, we talk a lot about its role in Syria and in Libya. But overall, Russia has not replaced the United States in the Middle East and North Africa, which reminds us a little bit of the Cold War when the Soviet Union tried to turn the entire region into a Soviet outpost and was limited because, well, just having come out of colonial times, the regional states didn't feel ready to sign up for another super entity. Um, I think there was also the dimension of uh, the atheist nature of communism that didn't appeal to a deeply conservative and religious region. So I, I would say that echoes of that are still present. Do you see some of that Soviet legacy echoing also through Russian approaches in Africa today? I definitely see some continuity. I mean, there is continuity, but there is, of course, also new elements. Like, for example, the uh, Soviet narrative back in the day really built on kind of support for national movements, anti-imperialism, of course, building socialism, obviously. And these days, the message is a bit different, but still it has very strong sort of this anti-imperial, anti-Western narrative, I think. But then I think now the emphasis is more on the kind of anti-liberalism and, and traditional values. And this is, of course, like a long way from the Soviet uh, tradition kind of progress and modernity. But now we are much more flirting with the autocrats and also the fact that, you know, you don't have to take in Western values and Western liberalism, but, you know, you can keep your own and have a kind of more traditional approach to many issues. Giovanni? A lot has changed. The system has changed and the actors have changed. It is no longer time for proxy wars. Russia does not have an interest right now in proxy wars. It has an interest in projecting influence, getting good deals, and possibly create some problems to other actors, including the European Union, that are scrambling for Africa. It is way more, and this was also what um, Sinikuka was saying, it, it is way more pragmatic and less ideological than it was before. So this is a big difference. What remains, of course, and this is more in our memories, I will say, than in the actual practice of the foreign policy, it's the legacy, the history, our memory of Soviet Union being massively influent player in Sub-Saharan Africa. But the way that happened, it's radically different and fulfilled very different purposes and happened through very different means. So it's like comparing you know, ancient Greece with modern Greece when it comes to EU matters. How does our colonial history impact our relations with Africa? Colonialism is there. It's an historical fact. Uh, no one can cancel it or deny it. It is, of course, up to the current policymakers and uh, decision makers to make sure that this doesn't stand in the way of a more beneficial partnership between the European Union and, and Africa. 
And most importantly, when we think about Russia and other global players, make sure that colonialism is not become instrument or is not used by other actors to put troubles and uh, to undermine that relationship within Europe and Africa. So that's a responsibility in a way. It's a burdensome responsibility because it's a very heavy past that Europe has vis-a-vis Africa. But it's not, again, it's not about denying it. It's about making sure that that's not used against the good prospects of relationship between Europe and Africa. Do you think we will see more of the sort of apology that Italy has done with Libya? For those of you who don't know that Italy signed a substantial or engaged in a substantial amount of effort to make goods of, of its colonial past with Libya. Do you think we'll see more of that? I'm fine with apologies and sometimes are necessary to rebuild good diplomatic relationships. No one denies that. But we are at a strategic crossroads right now in the relationship between Europe and Africa. And we really need to start thinking about future things, not just the even if heavy heritage that we have. And there are new generations out there that they know, of course, what the past, what their grandfather's past has been, but they want answers that are not rooted in the past, that are way more in the future than what we can think. So in a way, yes, of course, apologies are always a good way to reset diplomatic relationships. But what is vital for African countries is really to start thinking about what lies ahead. And that involves uh, building better policies and better partnerships and make sure that the youth especially benefits from these tools. The Soviet Union conceived of itself as an anti-imperialist construct, can we say that it was still nevertheless in its approach to certain states or parts of its components still colonial in nature or para-colonial or semi-colonial? Well, I don't know exactly about the definition that I would give, but certainly, I mean, you would have certain elements. And in Russian studies, there is a big theory about internal colonization, like the way in which kind of Russia was a colonial power, but basically always like expanding its own territory and then conquering different nations. And there was this process of Russification and Russia being the uh, lingua franca in that territory. But then, of course, I mean, then you would, would have also the kind of communist satellites in Europe, for example, that, of course, to great extent, were kind of under Russia's control. But I mean, when it comes to Russian narrative, I think, uh, you know, it was fiercely anti-imperialist. It was fiercely anti-colonialist. Russian or Soviet propaganda machine has always like had this kind of rigorous approach to words and they have really used certain uh, wording uh, strongly. But I think these days it's more about just like general anti-Westernism. And I think it has strong appeal in Africa, for example, and in many other parts of the world. So Russia is really uh, riding on that wave, I would say. What I find interesting is that in the narrative, it really feels like it's saying exactly what we are saying, but it's doing pretty much also what it accuses us of doing. So interference in other states, uh, military operations. I mean, even historically, you know, the, the war in Afghanistan, we're talking about the first war in the 80s, um, was, a, was a Soviet uh, enterprise. So it, it's very skilled at uh, turning the tables on us, I think. Yeah, definitely. And now with new technology, I mean, you have endless opportunities of kind of magnifying that message. And, uh, and unfortunately, Russia has been quite successful. So to end our conversation on a little bit of accountability, 
you know, foresight uh, is better when it's accountable. How likely do you think it is that Russia will interfere with an African election before the end of 2022? Uh, the scenario was already happening. So I guess my answer would need to be 100% because it's not only in future, but already today. Okay, Giovanni? Extremely likely to happen and also to happen more systematically in sub-Saharan Africa, not just in one targeted country, the one we picked as an example but also in different contexts, so scaling up. And if you had to give it a percentage? I will say 90%. 90%. Okay, so we will meet again in December 2022 to see whether it actually happened. Thank you, Sinikuka and Giovanni, for joining me on this trip to the future, to a fictional African country. And thanks to you for listening to us. Tune in again for another What If Scenario soon. <laughs>